Chapter Fourteen of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Fourteen. This rumor was of a nature to absorb and suspend the whole soul. A certain sublimity is connected with enormous dangers that imparts to our consternation or our pity a tincture of the pleasing. This, at least, may be experienced by those who are beyond the verge of peril. My own person was exposed to no hazard. I had leisure to conjure up terrific images and to personate the witnesses and sufferers of this calamity. This employment was not enjoined upon me by necessity, but was ardently pursued, and must therefore have been recommended by some nameless charm. Others were very differently affected. As often as the tale was embellished with new incidents or enforced by new testimony, the hearer grew pale, his breath was stifled by inquietudes, his blood was chilled, and his stomach was bereaved of its usual energies. A temporary indisposition was produced in many. Some were haunted by a melancholy bordering upon madness, and some, in consequence of sleepless panics, for which no cause could be assigned, and for which no opiates could be found, were attacked by lingering or mortal diseases. Mr. Hadwin was superior to groundless apprehensions. His daughters, however, partook in all the consternation which surrounded them. The eldest had, indeed, abundant reason for her terror. The youth to whom she was betrothed resided in the city. A year previous to this, he had left the house of Mr. Hadwin, who was his uncle, and had removed to Philadelphia in pursuit of fortune. He made himself clerk to a merchant, and by some mercantile adventures in which he had successfully engaged, began to flatter himself with being able, in no long time, to support a family. Meanwhile a tender and constant correspondence was maintained between him and his beloved Susan. This girl was a soft enthusiast, in whose bosom devotion and love glowed with an ardor that has seldom been exceeded. The first tidings of the yellow fever was heard by her with unspeakable perturbation. Wallace was interrogated by letter respecting its truth. For a time he treated it as a vague report. At length a confession was extorted from him that there existed a pestilential disease in the city, but he added that it was hitherto confined to one quarter, distant from the place of his abode. The most pathetic entreaties were urged by her that he would withdraw into the country. He declared his resolution to comply when the street in which he lived should become infected and his stay should be attended with real danger. He stated how much his interests depended upon the favor of his present employer, who had used the most powerful arguments to detain him, but declared that when his situation should become in the least degree perilous, he would slight every consideration of gratitude and interest, and fly to Malverton. Meanwhile he promised to communicate tidings of his safety by every opportunity. Belding, Mr. Hadwin's next neighbor, though not uninfected by the general panic, persisted to visit the city daily with his market-cart. He set out by sunrise and usually returned by noon. 
By him a letter was punctually received by Susan. As the hour of Belding's return approached, her impatience and anxiety increased. The daily epistle was received and read in a transport of eagerness. For a while her emotion subsided, but returned with augmented vehemence at noon on the ensuing day. These agitations were too vehement for a feeble constitution like hers. She renewed her supplications to Wallace to quit the city. He repeated his assertions of being, hitherto, secure, and his promise of coming when the danger should be imminent. When Belding returned, and, instead of being accompanied by Wallace, merely brought a letter from him, the unhappy Susan would sink into fits of lamentation and weeping, and repel every effort to console her with an obstinacy that partook of madness. It was at length manifest that Wallace's delays would be fatally injurious to the health of his mistress. Mr. Hadwin had hitherto been passive. He conceived that the entreaties and remonstrances of his daughter were more likely to influence the conduct of Wallace than any representations which he could make. Now, however, he wrote the contumacious Wallace a letter in which he laid his commands upon him to return in company with Belding, and declared that by a longer delay the youth would forfeit his favor. The malady had, at this time, made considerable progress. Belding's interest at length yielded to his fears, and this was the last journey which he proposed to make. Hence our impatience for the return of Wallace was augmented, since, if this opportunity were lost, no suitable conveyance might again be offered him. Belding set out, as usual, at the dawn of day. The customary interval between his departure and return was spent by Susan in a tumult of hopes and fears. As noon approached, her suspense arose to a pitch of wildness and agony. She could scarcely be restrained from running along the road many miles towards the city that she might, by meeting Belding halfway, the sooner ascertain the fate of her lover. She stationed herself at a window which overlooked the road along which Belding was to pass. Her sister and her father, though less impatient, marked with painful eagerness the first sound of the approaching vehicle. They snatched a look at it as soon as it appeared in sight. Belding was without a companion. This confirmation of her fears overwhelmed the unhappy Susan. She sunk into a fit from which, for a long time, her recovery was hopeless. This was succeeded by paroxysms of a furious insanity, in which she attempted to snatch any pointed implement which lay within her reach with a view to destroy herself. These being carefully removed or forcibly wrested from her, she resigned herself to sobs and exclamations. Having interrogated Belding, he informed us that he occupied his usual post in the market-place, that heretofore Wallace had duly sought him out and exchanged letters, but that on this morning the young man had not made his appearance, though Belding had been induced by his wish to see him to prolong his stay in the city much belong the usual period. That some other cause than sickness had occasioned this omission was barely possible. 
there was scarcely room for the most sanguine temper to indulge a hope. Wallace was without kindred and probably without friends in the city. The merchant in whose service he had placed himself was connected with him by no considerations but that of interest. What, then, must be his situation when seized with a malady which all believed to be contagious, and the fear of which was able to dissolve the strongest ties that bind human beings together? I was personally a stranger to this youth. I had seen his letters, and they bespoke not indeed any great refinement or elevation of intelligence, but a frank and generous spirit to which I could not refuse my esteem but his chief claim to my affection consisted in his consanguinity to Mr. Hadwin, and his place in the affections of Susan. His welfare was essential to the happiness of those whose happiness had become essential to mine. I witnessed the outrages of despair in the daughter, and the symptoms of a deep but less violent grief in the sister and parent. Was it not possible for me to alleviate their pangs? Could not the fate of Wallace be ascertained? This disease assailed men with different degrees of malignity. In its worst form perhaps it was incurable, but, in some of its modes, it was doubtless conquerable by the skill of physicians and the fidelity of nurses. In its least formidable symptoms, negligence and solitude would render it fatal. Wallace might perhaps experience this pest in its most lenient degree, but the desertion of all mankind, the want not only of medicines but of food, would irrevocably seal his doom. My imagination was incessantly pursued by the image of this youth, perishing alone and in obscurity, calling on the name of distant friends, or invoking ineffectually the succor of those who were near. Hitherto distress had been contemplated at a distance, and through the medium of a fancy delighting to be startled by the wonderful, or transported by sublimity. Now the calamity had entered my own doors, imaginary evils were supplanted by real, and my heart was the seat of commiseration and horror. I found myself unfit for recreation or employment. I shrouded myself in the gloom of the neighboring forest, or lost myself in the maze of rocks and dells. I endeavored in vain to shut out the phantoms of the dying Wallace, and to forget the spectacle of domestic woes. At length it occurred to me to ask, may not this evil be obviated, and the felicity of the Hadwins re-established? Wallace is friendless and succorless, but cannot I supply to him the place of protector and nurse? Why not hasten to the city, search out his abode, and ascertain whether he be living or dead? If he still retain life, may I not, by consolation and attendance, contribute to the restoration of his health, and conduct him once more to the bosom of his family? With what transports will his arrival be hailed? How amply will their impatience and their sorrow be compensated by his return, in the spectacle of their joys, how rapturous and pure will be my delight! Do the benefits which I have received from the Hadwins demand a less retribution than this? It is true that my own life will be endangered, but my danger will be proportioned to the duration of my stay in this seat of infection. 
the death or the flight of Wallace may absolve from me the necessity of spending one night in the city. The rustics who daily frequent the market are, as experience proves, exempt from this disease, in consequence perhaps of limiting their continuance in the city to a few hours. May I not, in this respect, conform to their example, and enjoy a similar exemption? My stay, however, may be longer than the day. I may be condemned to share in the common destiny. What then? Life is dependent on a thousand contingencies not to be computed or foreseen. The seeds of an early and lingering death are sown in my constitution. It is vain to hope to escape the malady by which my mother and my brothers have died. We are a race whose existence some inherent property has limited to the short space of twenty years. We are exposed, in common with the rest of mankind, to innumerable casualties, but if these be shunned, we are unalterably fated to perish by consumption. Why, then, should I scruple to lay down my life in the cause of virtue and humanity? It is better to die in the consciousness of having offered a heroic sacrifice, to die by a speedy stroke, than by the perverseness of nature, in ignominious inactivity and lingering agonies. These considerations determined me to hasten to the city. To mention my purpose to the Hadwins would be useless or pernicious. It would only augment the sum of their present anxieties. I should meet with a thousand obstacles in the tenderness and terror of Eliza, and in the prudent affection of her father. Their arguments I should be condemned to hear, but should not be able to confute, and should only load myself with imputations of perverseness and temerity. But how else should I explain my absence? I had hitherto preserved my lips untainted by prevarication or falsehood. Perhaps there was no occasion which would justify an untruth, but here at least it was superfluous or hurtful. My disappearance, if effected without notice or warning, will give birth to speculation and conjecture, but my true motives will never be suspected, and therefore will excite no fears. My conduct will not be charged with guilt. It will merely be thought upon with some regret, which will be alleviated by the opinion of my safety and the daily expectation of my return. But since my purpose was to search out Wallace, I must be previously furnished with directions to the place of his abode, and a description of his person. Satisfaction on this head was easily obtained from Mr. Hadwin, who was prevented from suspecting the motives of my curiosity by my questions being put in a manner apparently casual. He mentioned the street and the number of the house. I listened with surprise. It was a house with which I was already familiar. He resided, it seems, with a merchant. Was it possible for me to be mistaken? What, I asked, was the merchant's name? Thetford. This was a confirmation of my first conjecture. I recollected the extraordinary means by which I had gained access to the house and bedchamber of this gentleman. I recalled the person and appearance of the youth by whose artifices I had been entangled in the snare. These artifices implied some domestic or confidential connection between Thetford and my guide. Wallace was a member of the family. 
Could it be he by whom I was betrayed? Suitable questions easily obtained from Hadwin a description of the person and carriage of his nephew. Every circumstance evinced the identity of their persons. Wallace, then, was the engaging and sprightly youth whom I had encountered at Lesher's, and who, for purposes not hitherto discoverable, had led me into a situation so romantic and perilous. I was far from suspecting that these purposes were criminal. It was easy to infer that his conduct proceeded from juvenile wantonness and a love of sport. My resolution was unaltered by this disclosure, and having obtained all the information which I needed, I secretly began my journey. My reflections on the way were sufficiently employed in tracing the consequences of my project, in computing the inconveniences and dangers to which I was preparing to subject myself, in fortifying my courage against the influence of rueful sights and abrupt transitions, and in imagining the measures which it would be proper to pursue in every emergency. Connected as these views were with the family and character of Thetford, I could not but sometimes advert to those incidents which formerly happened. The mercantile alliance between him and Welbeck was remembered, the allusions which were made to the condition of the latter in the chamber conversation, of which I was an unsuspected auditor, and the relation which these allusions might possess with subsequent occurrences. Welbeck's property was forfeited. It had been confided to the care of Thetford's brother. Had the cause of this forfeiture been truly or thoroughly explained? Might not contraband articles have been admitted through the management or under the connivance of the brothers? And might not the younger Thetford be furnished with the means of purchasing the captured vessel and her cargo, which, as usual, would be sold by auction at a fifth or tenth of its real value? Welbeck was not alive to profit by the detection of this artifice, admitting these conclusions to be just. My knowledge will be useless to the world, for by what motives can I be influenced to publish the truth? Or by whom will my single testimony be believed, in opposition to that plausible exterior, and perhaps to that general integrity which Thetford has maintained? To myself it will not be unprofitable. It is a lesson on the principles of human nature, on the delusiveness of appearances, on the perviousness of fraud, and on the power with which nature has invested human beings over the thoughts and actions of each other. Thetford and his frauds were dismissed from my thoughts to give place to considerations relative to Clemenza Lodi and the money which chance had thrown into my possession. Time had only confirmed my purpose to restore these bills to the rightful proprietor, and heightened my impatience to discover her retreat. I reflected that the means of doing this were more likely to suggest themselves at the place to which I was going than elsewhere. I might indeed perish before my views in this respect could be accomplished. Against these evils I had at present no power to provide. While I lived, I would bear perpetually about me the volume and its precious contents. If I died, a superior power must direct the course of this as of all other events. End of chapter 14